Well, church, it is a joy to worship with you this morning. I want to thank you elders on how you've uh, formed today's liturgy order of service and how, how much of a blessing it is and how it just unites all together, especially with our passage this morning. Uh, but it is a joy to worship with you, Waco family. Uh, this morning, Olivia, my four-year-old, asked, uh, what church are we worshiping at or going to today? And I was trying to think of someone she could... Uh, she knew that she could connect with it. And I said, well, we're going to uh, Mr. Cruz, our pastor Toss church. And she said, uh, no, it's, it's baby Susie's church. <laughs> and so baby Susie, thank you for allowing us to come here and uh, worship with you this morning. If, if you have your copy of God's word, if you can turn to Exodus chapter 20, if you haven't already, excuse me, not 20, Exodus chapter 23, we will be in verses 20 through 32. Now, I, a, a pastor claiming he has a favorite book of the Bible to study um, or to preach through feels somewhat wrong, kind of like saying you have a favorite child. You, you don't want to exactly uh, mention that, and it may depend on the time of the year or time of the week or month or what have you. Um, but, but I'll at least say that as I've recently led our church in studying through Exodus, the Lord has used it greatly to give me uh, greater insights, gave us as a church greater insights into the significance of Exodus itself and the book and everything in it, along with the rest of the Torah and all together. And then especially as we see going forward, the rest of the Old Testament and its significance for what's to come. Not to mention what Christ accomplished. And I'll just stop there because I can go on about its benefits, but I'll just say... The more you understand Exodus, the more you understand the Old Testament, the more enlightening the New Testament is as it's built upon it. Now, some of you are probably well acquainted with Exodus and, and maybe others. Maybe you're more new to the Christian faith. Maybe you, you heard about it in Sunday school. You read a bit about it, the stories, or you saw the Charleston Heston film, Ten Commandments, and that's what you know. And that's okay. Uh, but wherever you are, regardless where you land, I'll, I'll try to get just a quick synopsis of what has occurred so far in the book and, and all the way up to where we are in the passage to position our minds um, to in the right place before we read the passage. So fulfilling the promise to Abraham and listening to the cries of his people, the Lord had liberated the Israelites from bondage in Egypt, conquering their gods through the wonders and plagues, showing his sovereignty over all things, including Pharaoh, passing over their firstborn by the blood of a lamb, and then finally bringing them through the Red Sea that would save them but destroy their enemies. Amen. The Exodus events are described repeatedly in the Old Testament as a new creation. Amen. A people being brought forth out of darkness, out of waters of judgment, into this marvelous light. And as we'll see near the end of the day, there was an expectation later in the Old Testament that the Lord would bring about a second exodus, a greater exodus. And so as he brings them to Mount Sinai, he confirms the covenantal promise he made with their forefather, Abraham, that he would not only redeem his descendants from slavery, but he would lead them to a promised land, described as a new Eden, a place that was set apart where he would dwell with his people. But to experience these promises, Exodus 19 and 20 detail the Lord leading them into a covenant, which they agreed to, to experience the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. So the Lord expounds the moral law through giving the Decalogues, the, the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, and then he applies 
or exposits those ten words in the book of the covenants. So the book of the covenant is what occurs after in Exodus 20 verse 22 through at the end of Exodus 23. It is the application, the exposition of the Ten Commandments. It's on, it describes to Israel how Israel is to worship God as he desires. How they are to avoid idolatry. How they are to honor the Sabbath. How they are to honor mother and father. To handle fed thieves and murderers and idolaters and uh, covetousness and personal property. To observe all these matters in the Old Testament land of Israel. As I will see in our passage this morning, though individual experience of the blessings of the covenant depended on loyalty and obedience, a type of covenant works. The Lord nonetheless showed his covenantal love and grace by fulfilling the promises he made to Abraham. He will, he will lead them to a place prepared and bring about a conquest. So let's begin this morning by reading our passage. We'll ask the Lord to enlighten us to the purpose of his word and we'll work through the implications. So Exodus chapter 20, beginning with verse, Exodus 23, beginning with verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you, and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate, and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare for you. Well, this is the word of the Lord, so let's pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this day that has been set aside to remind us the rest we have in Christ. We thank you for what he's accomplished for us. We thank you for this word that has been passed down and kept pure for us to guide us to convict us, to build us up in the faith, to give us comfort in the gospel of Christ. We thank you that you've written out these things even in the Old Testament and how they pertain to us, giving us insight in how you have worked throughout history 
to redeem a people for yourself and also teach us how unfaithful we can be and to rely on our faithful Savior. Lord, I pray this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you, our Lord and Redeemer. Amen. So as I mentioned, this passage is the epilogue. It's the end of the Book of the Covenants. The exhibition of the Decalogue, while the Israelites are camped at the foot of the mountain of Mount Sinai. And as it comes to a close, the Lord begins not with a requirement from them, but with a promise. We see this in verse 20. He says, I sent an angel, I will send an angel before you. And this angel will accomplish two things. Number one, it's going to guard you along the way to the promised land, and it will also bring you to it. Now, this may be the most substantial verse of our entire passage, for it really summarizes everything that is spoken of afterwards. Now, the role of this angel is very interesting. Number one, this angel, or that word can be translated as messenger, angel can be messenger. This angel, messenger, is the same one taking on the form of the pillar of fire cloud so far in their travels, standing as a, a guide and protector along their way in the wilderness. Secondly, it is said this angel will guard or keep this consecrated holy people of, of the Lord, which is the same Hebrew word used in Genesis 2.15 of Adam's role of guarding and keeping the holy place of Eden. Verse 2 says this messenger's words must be obeyed and that it carries the Lord's name. His, his name is in him. Now a lot of ink has been spilled, has been spilled on identifying this angel. Some believe the fire cloud pillar that has led them so far is just an, an animate object. And, and that's what this angel messenger is. I, I don't believe that is the case. It's the Lord's identity is itself, him himself is in the fire cloud. That's how he identifies with it. As he did with the burning bush, it's also to be obeyed. I don't know how you can obey an inanimate object. Others believe the Lord is speaking of Moses. He's this angel messenger. But it doesn't seem to match so well as later on, Exodus 32 to 33, the same statement is repeated to Moses, saying, Moses, I will have an angel go out before you and your people. Others may be, the majority would probably just simply say, it's what you have in mind of an angel. It's an angel, an angelic being who stands in the Lord's, as the Lord's emissary, sent to protect and lead the people. It certainly occurs in other times of, in, in Scripture. And of those options there, I, I would certainly just go with that last one, but, but I would lean with those like John Calvin, John Gill, and hold that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Messiah, the Son of God. This is a Christophany. Calvin writes, no common angels designated, but the chief of all angels, who has always been the head of the church. Paul states in 1 Corinthians 10, 9, that we should have put Christ to the test as the Israelites put Christ to the test in the wilderness when they disobeyed. Think, think about that. And this angel was not only to be obeyed, it was given the authority to judge, and the Lord's very name was in him. And this brings to mind the Father speaking at Christ's baptism, saying, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. And what are we told after Christ's resurrection and ascension? He's been given all authority. 
including judgment. And he carries the very name of the Lord as he is Lord. His very name is in him. And I'll just give one final comparison. This angels go before them to bring them to a place the Lord had prepared. Did any bells go off in your mind when that was said, when that was stated? Like someone saying, I go to a place to go to prepare a place for you. I think Jesus in John 14, 2 is alluding to this passage as he says, he will not only prepare the place, but come back for his disciples to bring them to that place. I have a promised land for you and I, and I go to prepare it and I'll come back to bring you to that greater promised land. Now, regardless where you may be saying on the angel's identity, I, I just want you to place yourself in the shoes of an Israelite in this setting. Since leaving slavery, these people have complained and have groaned about their situation, requiring the Lord to provide food and water. They saw the weight of the Lord's glory from afar. As a thick cloud covered the mountain, lightning and thunder cracked, trumpets blasted, a threat of death was given if anyone drew close but Moses. And after hearing the decalogue from the voice of the Lord, they trembled in fear of the Lord's holiness and told Moses, you speak for us now. If we hear him, we die. Do you notice they aren't only just sinners, groaning, moaning, grumbling sinners, but they're also needy, insufficient, unholy sinners? Yet here's what we see. That the same God who guided them out of Egypt, who stood between them and the Egyptian army, the same God who, who led them in night and day as a pillar of fire cloud through their travels, the same God who provided manna and water when they were in need, the same God who clearly knows their unholiness and unworthiness, will continue to guard and protect them. Todd mentioned last week in his sermon how blessed we are that our Lord has perfections and, and passions and not emotions wavering like ours do as our confession affirms. And, and equally along with that, I want you to acknowledge how blessed we are that our Lord is impassable and unchanging. The Lord time and time again proves his faithfulness by making unchanging promises to changing people despite their unfaithfulness. He will bring unfaithful people to a new Eden-like land. He did so then, and he will do so now through the work of Christ. As the Apostle Paul gloriously confesses in 2 Timothy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Oh, church, if you take nothing out of this morning, believer, let your assurance be strengthened by the truth that the Lord's faithfulness to his adopted children is just so certain that failure of that task would mean denying himself. What a statement. But from this promise, however, comes stipulations for this covenantal people. This is the form biblical covenants take. They have offer promises, stipulations. Do this, or if you do this, then you will be blessed. And on the negative, if you don't do this, you'll die. Or oh, if you don't do this, you will be cursed. So what are the stipulations? 
In verse 22, the Lord says, If you carefully obey the angel's voice and do all that I say, then I'll be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. And, and there I think that is an allusion to Genesis 3.15. And what the Lord tells the serpent. The Lord tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. So flowing forward from there, we see this pattern reaching all the way through Scripture to Revelation of the seed of serpents making war on the seed of the woman. And, and with that, the Lord promising blessing and victory to the seed of the woman. That promise continues on in Abrahamic covenant. The Lord says, I will bless you. Oh, excuse me. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. So an offspring, a, a, a dynasty, if you will, as we see that more develop, is promised here. And that promise in the Abrahamic covenant is alongside another promise of dominion, of a land, a promised land. In Genesis 15, the Lord tells Abraham that his offspring, his seed, will be given the land of the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Jebusites. So back to our passage, who are the enemies in mind? Who are the offspring of the serpent? Verse 33 23, excuse me, list them. It's the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, Hivites, the Jebusites. It's the same ones mentioned in Genesis 15. It's those that are in open rebellion against the Lord, those who worship false gods, the sons of disobedience. As we see later in the Old Testament accounts, facing these enemies is a daunting task. I think we forget something at this point. Because we, we read what comes later and Israel becomes this army and, and through the Lord's blessing, they're mighty. They conquer nations. But place yourself back at this moment. They, they're not really much of an army yet. They're, they're former slaves for 400 years. The idea of taking on such enemies had to be nerve-wracking. I mean, we would probably say now, it's just not practical. But notice what the Lord says in verse 23. My angel will go before you. He'll bring you to these enemies and I will destroy them. Jumping down to verse 27 to 28 for a moment. He says he will send hornets or, or terrors ahead of them to drive out this idolatrous people. Um, that word for hornets, it can be translated as terrors. It's used before um, uh, in, in Exodus to describe the panic and the turmoil he caused in the Egyptian army. In verse 29 and 30, he says that this conquest will not occur quickly, not in a year, but gradually so the land doesn't become desolate. So through their role in conquering the land as instructed, they are to be, they are to persevere in obedience. But but yet, even, even with that, even with the emphasis on their obedience, we see yet again that it is the Lord who will sovereignly bring about his purposes and promises. Yet again, do you see why one's understanding of God, one's doctrine of God matters? And with a slow conquest, there is the implication that they must trust the Lord's providence during trial and efforts. Because we are a people who love fast results. Whether it's something like fast food or fast wealth, Fast church growth. 
fast sanctification. We want the Lord to act quickly. And yet rarely do we see the Lord act quickly in Scripture. One of the ongoing nuggets of wisdom that Israelites are to learn, and you, church, you are to learn, we are to learn, is not to judge the Lord's faithfulness based on our circumstances. He promised he would provide for them during their wanderings, and yet on and on, they judged according to their circumstances and groaned. You are not taking care of us. In fact, we would be better as slaves. We are hungry. We're going to die in the desert, and yet the Lord provides manna from above and quail from the winds. We are thirsty. We're going to die in this wilderness, and yet he provides... He turns sour water sweet and provides water from a rock. Not to mention he conquered the gods of Egypt through the plagues. He swallowed the Egyptian army in the sea. So going forward, though they will face great enemies, the all-powerful creator and sustainer will go before them in battle. How can they be concerned about losing? Why will they not trust him and have faith in the victory? One thing that spurred on some of the great Baptists and, and Reformed missionaries in the former centuries, like Adonai Judson, William Carey, John Patton, was the understanding of not only the Lord's sovereignty, but his divine election, that he will accomplish his purpose and he will call his people to himself, working through word and spirit. And so they would preach the gospel faithfully for seven years without a convert holding fast to God's word as sufficient. Or like John Patton's case, he would go to an island with cannibals. He, he would face failure. He would lose his family, but he would come back because he knows the Lord is faithful. They persevered. They didn't persevere to achieve victory. They persevered because Christ had already obtained the victory. What does Colossians 2.15 say? Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Church, we, we fight from victory, not for victory. For our churches, for our sanctification, we don't fight for victory, we fight from it on what Christ has accomplished. The Israelites were to trust the Lord as they fought their enemies. and doing so, the Lord would bring victory. And that itself should give them pause in being enticed by the nations and their gods. In verse 24, they are told, don't bow down to the gods, don't serve them, don't do as they do, or according to their deeds. In verse 32 to 33, he almost repeats the same order, including not to covenant with them. So not to build a, a strong relationship with them and, and or their gods or allow them to dwell in their lands. Now certainly in figures like Rahab, the prostitute, and Ruth, we see examples of those of the nations who bow down before the one true God and were brought into the covenantal people. But if that did not occur, they were to leave none alive. The influence of the nations is to be removed from them. Why? 
obviously, because the Lord is one true God who's owed all worship, indeed. But, but also, he's essentially saying, I would say, I'm about to slaughter their, their gods and, and their way of life. They will be defeated, so don't allow your hearts to be enticed by a soon-to-be-vanquished enemy. That's failure. You see, the Lord knows man's heart very well. He understands how easily enticed we are to the gods of our making. So he orders them to utterly destroy these idol worshippers and demolish their sacred pillars. And, and as I said near the beginning, this promised land was like a new Eden. Michael Horton comments, as a new Adam, Israel must drive the servant from God's temple and guard and keep it. The land is not simply a gift to be enjoyed, but a task to be fulfilled, being brought under the Lord's lordship. They were to keep holy this land as Adam was to keep holy the temple-like land of Eden. Now, many of these promises and orders are directly tied with the Mosaic Covenant, which is no longer binding as it's been fulfilled in Christ. But, church, we can't apply to ourselves the matter of being aware of idols in not only churches, but in our personal lives. And don't be deceived thinking idols are inherently just the bad things, that the, the ones we immediately think of. Drugs and alcohol and sexual immorality and gambling and what have you. Those are the easy ones. It's, in, it's just whenever we love and place something before God in priority. It be jobs and hobbies. It be families, children, things that we're called to care for. One pastor notes, you know something is an idol when you sin to get it or sin when it's taken away. We also see this emphasis in the New Testament on the importance of holiness in a local church. This is why Paul stressed church discipline in 1 Corinthians 5 with a man living in unrepentant sexual immorality. This is how the seven churches of Revelation 1-3 through were judged. They weren't judged on crowds or records of baptism, but faithfulness and obedience to the Lord. Like Old Testament Israel, we are be faithful to the Lord's will and hold fast to his word. And if any of you are new to a confessional church, let me just tell you, that is one of the beautiful aspects, the important aspects of a confession of a church. It is guardrails and guiding that we hold fast to the doctrine that's been passed down from God's word. It's easy for man to slip away. And right after these orders come along further blessings of obedience to this covenant. Do this and live. Do this and experience blessings. What are these blessings? He says in verse 25, you shall serve the Lord and through serving me, through obedience, experience the blessings of Abraham. Now he doesn't say experience blessings of Abraham, but they match with what the Lord promised Abraham. Seed, offspring, a dynasty, and then land. So I just want you to keep that in mind as we go on. We have seed and land, or dynasty and a dominion. The Lord says, I will bless your bread and, and water. So I think right here we, we have this idea of bread and manna and water, sour to sweet water, water from the rock. He's going to provide. 
I will take away sickness. Verse 26, none shall miscarry or be bare in the land. I will fulfill the number of your days. What are those promises consisting of? Blessings of seed, offspring, prosperity of their descendants. descendants. And jumping down to verse 31, the blessing of dominion and land is given. It's, it's clear boundaries are, are given. The, the promised land has its markers of north, south, east, and west of these geographical locations. So we summarize this passage and we see this. A promise extending back to, the, to, to Abraham of land, dominion, offspring, seed. The Lord will bring Abraham's physical offspring to this promised land and they will multiply. But in this Mosaic covenant that was to govern the people of Israel, there are stipulations to experience these blessings. Obey the angel's voice in my words. Drive out the idolaters. Don't serve their gods. Don't do as they do. Make no covenant with them. Don't allow them to dwell in the land. In short, avoid the serpent's treason and keep the Eden-like land holy. Do this and live. Don't do this and die. And despite their confidence, and oh, were they confident. And despite their confidence, they would uphold the covenantal requirements. The people as a whole would fail. Psalm 78 is a historical psalm, accounting of Israel's past. And just listen how it, it describes their history. Their heart was not set fast towards him. They were not faithful to his covenant. How often they would rebel against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They gave in to the gods that were to be defeated. They made compromises with the enemies. For good intentions, I'm sure they would say. But as time goes on, we see how those compromises against faithfulness, like a cancer spreads. They would be an unfaithful people. As Adam failed the covenant, he was placed under to obey the Lord, keep the Eden temple free from the serpent's treason. So Israel failed to obey the Lord and keep the Eden-like land free from the serpent's will. As Adam was exiled from Eden, so the offspring of Abraham would be exiled. And even when they would return to the land and rebuild the temple, they were still awaiting the Lord's presence. In one sense, they were still in exile. They awaited the promised seed. They were awaiting the promised seed of the woman. They were awaiting an everlasting new covenant promised in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They were awaiting a new exodus. But not one out of physical slavery, but spiritual slavery. They awaited the one who could keep the law of God and fulfill all righteousness and promises. And then arrives Jesus. Then arrives Jesus, and when he began his earthly ministry, he, as the new Adam, as the true Israel, succeeded where they failed. Amen. 
He triumphed over the seed of the serpent, announced the kingdom of God, a domain not limited by geography, not limited by the sea of the Philistines or by the deserts, but one that will one day expand to encompass the entire earth. And the joyful news is that those who are brought into the covenant that Christ established are not the ones who guarantee the covenants. As Hebrews 7.22 notes, Christ is the guarantor of a better covenant. For you and I would fail if we were put right back in their shoes. We don't want to go back under the Mosaic Covenant. We don't even want to go back to Eden because we would fall right back into Adam and Israel's steps. And we, his elect, his church, united to him becoming a temple, we are kept holy and pure, awaiting our coming glorification. Christ keeps us. As seven, chapter 17 of our confession states, we have certainty of our perseverance and we're being kept within the covenant, which is guaranteed by the efficacy of the merits and intercession of Jesus Christ and union with him, the oath of God, the abiding of the spirit and the seed of God within them and the nature of the covenant of grace. Church, the application of this passage isn't obey so you gain God's blessings and the rewards. That places you back under the law. Because if that was the case, and if one came to say you need to obey application, obey to gain God's blessing and reward, you'll never gain blessing and reward. The fulfilled message is that through Christ's obedience, we are blessed. Now, does that mean that our bless our obedience does not matter? Or it's insignificant? By no means. We are a holy people. Our, our, our works can vindicate our faith. We give praise and glory to God. And in fact, you can say, without falling into a prosperity type of gospel, we can say we are blessed when we are obeyed. Your marriages are blessed when you are in obedience to the Lord. Our churches are blessed when we are in obedience to the Lord. There is blessing. That's how the Lord feeds us. Through the acknowledging and obedience of the gathering of His people, the preaching and teaching, partaking of His word. We certainly are blessed through obedience. But as ultimately, the reward we obtain is dwelling in the presence of God. That's our reward. That's our ultimate reward that we look towards. That Christ accomplished for us. That our justification and our sanctification, our glorification leads to. So while we have already begun to experience the joy of our communion with, with Christ, now by our way of union with Him, the fullness of our reward, of that reward Christ has obtained for us, is something we continue to press on for by faith. At death, our perfected souls go to be with Christ, but along with the rest of the reigning saints, we wait in anticipation of the consummation of the kingdom. We await the new heavens and the new earth. And so we're the first Adam's failure led to death, being the outcome of being in the presence of the Lord. The second Adam, his obedience means we can experience it with joy and rest and glory 
as we will experience it through the face of Christ himself. Revelation 22 says they will see his face. The ongoing desire and longing, starting from Genesis 3.15 onward, is for God to dwell among his people. And though we have tasted it now, we will truly know that in the consummated kingdom. So we persevere. We seek to be a holy nation. To lay idols aside. But we do so resting in the one who has already conquered. Who will conquer. And who fulfills all promises of God. So rest in Christ today. Let's pray. Lord, once again, we are we are grateful for the reminders given in your word of how sinful and disobedient we are, how greatly we fail and transgress your perfect law and standard. Yes, we are grateful for that because we need that conviction that mirror to then show us the need of a Savior. And that you indeed have provided. We thank you for the types and shadows that you've laid forth in the Old Testament, pointing your people to the need of one who is holy, pointing your people to a need of one who is a greater manna, who is a greater source of living waters, one who is the true seed of Abraham, one who is the ultimate promised seed of the woman, who would vanquish the enemy, who would vanquish sin, put death to rest, who would conquer the grave, who would keep those you have chosen before the foundation of the world, who keeps your temple pure, who is a perfect king who doesn't go aside and worship the other idols or forget the law. We thank you for Christ being the fulfillment of all promises and all shadows. Lord, this morning I pray that you build us up in the faith through our image of the law and rest in the gospel. You remind us that Christ has accomplished and fulfilled the covenantal obligations. We don't. I pray those this morning who don't know you, who are seeking to be good enough to obtain salvation or seeking to find various ways to obtain it, or maybe they simply don't care at all, Lord, I pray that you open their eyes to the glory of Christ and they bow their knee before him, trusting in him alone as Lord and Savior. Lord, we thank you for Christ being the one who conquers. We thank you for the one who's the keeper of all covenants. For this morning we rest in him and your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.